And now, enjoy this free Jason Modcast show. Public life as an American nerd, I am your host, David K. Montoya. Welcome back, kids. Um, I apologize. First off, if my voice sounds a little shaky, I'm not feeling well. I actually held out to the very last minute to record this episode just because I've been feeling so crummy. Um, I've been actually, I've, I've been kind of nerding out um, because you know, Halloween season, it's October, and uh, you know, you just try to get into the mood. Well, I do. I, I enjoy a good scary movie once in a while. But I, I kind of overdid it, to be honest with you. Um, I was at Walmart. Um, I don't know why I was over there. I think I was just picking up something for laundry or something. Um, typically, they have the best prices for like laundry detergent and fabric softener. And uh, I was just bored, so I was looking around, and I, I saw that there was a eight-pack movie of Friday the 13th. They had uh, Friday the 13th 1 through 8, and it was for 15 bucks. And I just I said, all right, you know, okay, let's, let's do this. So I went ahead and I purchased, purchased the, the movies and took it back home and, and started watching them right away. And within a week, which is more, you know, there was a couple days where I actually watched two movies. Uh, I, I ended up watching them all. In fact, I, I was in a roll, or on a roll rather, and I decided that I went to Amazon Prime Streaming and I, I purchased, well not purchased, I rented Jason Goes to Hell, which was officially, you know, uh, Friday the 13th, Part 9. So there is two more. It, well, two more if you count. Three more if you count um, the remake. But I, I after Jason Goes to Hell, I just kind of burnt myself out on the Jason movies. But I know there's still like a Jason X movie which is the 10th one, and then Freddy vs. Jason, which is the 11th one, which I own already. And then the remake makes number 12. I, I might finish watching them before Halloween. We'll see. Um, I don't know. I just, I, I really enjoy it. Well, okay, let me back up. I, I was just being kind of generally vague in this. Oh, what I was about to say. Part one, I do not know how part one became a phenomenon. I really don't know. Because I just did not care for it whatsoever at all. I, I thought it was it was uh, poorly acted. It was poorly developed. I mean, other than the you know, the big change that Pamela Voorhees is is the murderer. You know, that's the only thing that gave it credibility. And 
I don't know. Maybe that was it. Maybe that was such a, a big thing in 1980 that, you know, a woman was the killer, you know, that it was it was such a big thing. But, you know, you jump almost, well, 38 years into the future, and, and we've got this big woman liberation movement going on, and nothing surprises me when it comes to uh, putting a woman in a spotlight. So maybe that's why I'm just kind of desensitized to that kind of thing. But I just, I didn't care for one. And I didn't care for two either. It, it just, because, okay, two, well, number one, how? How did that work? Because at the end of one, Jason, who was still a boy after all those years later, which made no sense to me, had jumped up out of the lake at the very end and and pulled the I can't remember the girl's name into the water. Then we open with two. She's living away from Crystal Lake. You know, she's got her her life. You know, she's trying to get her life together. And this is the introduction to the adult Jason. And, you know, she finds the decapitated mother's head in the, the refrigerator, which I thought ah, was a good touch. Anyway, she died. I thought I felt, number one, she died way too fast because, you know, she did so well in the first one just to turn around and die so quickly. And I don't know. I just I didn't buy the Jason theme, maybe because it was such a new concept for part two that, to make, you know, part two and make Jason the killer. And then in number three, that's when when it kind of got it was it was better. Um, I I will put this out there. I want to see number three in 3D. So does if anybody has blue and red 3D glasses, please please donate them to me. You can contact me at davidkmontoya at jayzomon, J-A-Y-Z-O-M-O-N.com. And let me know how much you want to sell them. You know, like five bucks. I'll go as high as five bucks. But, I, I yeah, I, I want to see part three in 3D. But anyway, part three was when the story starts picking up. It's, it's really good. And, of course, it's the first time we see Jason with the hockey mask. So... I think that's one of the reasons why is because of the familiarity of, of Jason as Jason in a hockey mask. And then, of course, three or four and five. Um, well, number four was was OK. You know, it was decent. Number five was OK, except that it was a copycat. That was my biggest hang up is that it wasn't even really Jason. It was just a copycat. Um, you know, the guy, the fat kid in the beginning was slaughtered by the some psycho, and the father seen the kid slaughtered, so he decided that he was going to dress up like Jason and kill everybody else. And that just, I don't know, that didn't work for me. That was five. Six was the best, I think, as far as story-wise, plot-wise. That was Jason Lives, I believe. And that was pretty good. And then, um, let's see, seven, 
Seven was okay. Nothing really there. Eight was the Jason Takes Manhattan. That was, for some reason, that really seemed long to me. I don't know why. But, yeah, that was that was amusing. Um, I was like, wow, they really digress with the, the storyline of moving it to uh, Crystal Lake. Um, but then they came out with Jason Goes to Hell, and that was... Okay, Jason Goes to Hell, and I'll, I'll switch to something else because I've been going on for about 10 minutes now on this. Jason Goes to Hell is a combination. No, number one, it was the first movie that was put out by New Line Cinema when they picked up the rights. So it was Jason Goes to Hell, Final Night, or the, the see, I almost said Final Nightmare, um, the Final Friday. And the reason I say I almost said Final Nightmare is because they took aspects of Freddy Krueger's Nightmare on Elm Street and aspects of Halloween and they slammed it together into this heaping pile of flashlum that is just the storyline. I mean, the, the movie was decent. The storyline was horrible, though. It was an apparent ripoff of, of these two movies, um, you know, because of the Voorhees house. Voorhees house. You know, I, I, I thought uh, it neither being... You know, the Myers house, the Michael Myers house, or, uh, you know, the Kruger's house, Nancy's house. And then to be born through a bloodline, to come back again, that was done. I think that was done in both movies, actually. And then, um, you know, to be killed with a special dagger, I'm almost 100% certain that happened in Halloween. And I just, I, I think maybe that's why. Maybe it was just like, because as a kid, I was 1993, so I was, see, 17? No, 16, when I seen it in the movie theater. And I remember I, I, I liked it. But, I, you know, a 16-year-old perspective to a 40, almost 42-year-old perspective is, is quite different, you know? And, um, yeah, I think maybe that's why I just didn't care for it that much. And that, and I know that Jason X is Jason goes in the space. And that has got to be like really pushing the limits of creativity. You know what I'm saying? It's like, okay, <laughs> it started as this vindictive woman who's upset because her handicapped son was allowed to be drowned at a, uh, a youth camp. While the the counselors were all having sex with each other, so I get that. And then she killed everybody, and then you know it turned into he didn't die. Now he's avenging her death, and then it turns into he can't die, and he just likes to kill. And that you know it all takes place in the camp. Now it's taking place in a spaceship. I don't know how many years later, centuries later, I believe. So, yeah, that's kind of a stretch on it. Um, Spain, well, let's see, how do I, I was going to try to segue into it, but I don't know if I can. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to talk about this uh, episode was my brother and I are going to go see the uh, premiere 
of Halloween tomorrow. And we're really excited. I'm really, really hoping that it's going to be as fun and exciting and hopefully scary that I have my expectations up for. And uh, I was going through looking for articles, and this one caught my attention. And and since I'm kind of really excited to see Halloween, the the remake, uh, I decided to share this with you. And it is, Halloween goes behind the iconic mask in new featurette. Okay, let's see what it says. With the new Halloween, a day away from the wide release, the latest featurette provides a behind-the-scenes look at the recreating slasher Michael Myers' iconic mask. The Michael Myers mask is so iconic, it was very important to authenticate and honorable to John Carpenter's original Halloween, explained director and co-writer David Gordon Green. Let's not put our spin on it. Let's recreate the mask. I like that idea. Drawing heavy visual influence from the original 1978 vintage, the new incarnation of the shape was then intentionally weathered to reflect the 40-year passage of time since the events of the first film. There's something about the simplicity of the first mask that I think just makes it timeless, admitted co-writer Danny McBride. The most important thing for it was to scare the crap out of you, declared original Halloween filmmaker John Carpenter, debuting October 19th, but we're going to the premiere tomorrow, which was the 18th, which is today, actually, as you're listening to this. Uh, But it says, debuting October 19th, the latest Halloween is directed by David Gordon Green, from a script written with Danny McBride and Jeff Fredley, the stars Jamie Lee Curtis, Jody Gurr, Andy McCurchak, with Nick Castle and James Judd Courtney sharing the role of mass killer Michael Myers. The film is an executive produced and scored by the original filmmaker John Carpenter. Okay, that was actually pretty simple and straight to the point. Um, I I will have to see. I thought they were going to talk about, you know, more of it than the um, the featurette, which I will see if I can track down and, and check that out because I like I said I'm really looking forward to this film and I really hope that it it lives up to my expectations of what it could be. Uh, Speaking of expectations, one of the other things that I wanted to talk about, um, and I'm doing this now instead of the end because I'll see, hopefully I won't go into a rant about this. I will see what happens. Because everybody knows probably by now that I am a big X-Men fan, and 
I, I, I'm very critical. And I apologize, but that's just what I am. I just the way I like it. Okay, um, so with that, we're talking about expectations and everything. It says, Jim Chung assembles Marvel Mutants for Uncanny X-Men number one variant. Can someone tell me how many times since 20, what is it, 2012, 2011, 2012, have the X-Men been rebooted? I mean, seriously, how many times has it been rebooted? For the love of Pete, it, it's, I, I want to say three or four, honestly, if not more. And they're getting ready to do it again next month. So there you go. All right, let's see what it says. I'm going to do my best not to get into a rant about this because I, I have more articles that I want to talk about. But let's see what it says. It says, the X-Men are coming back in a big way to Marvel Comics next month. The publisher has gradually been releasing variant covers for the debut issue of Uncanny X-Men Relaunch. Illustrated by Jim Chung, the variant shows the team, led by X-23, Storm, Jean Grey, leaping into action. The trio are followed by Bishop, Beast, and Psylocke. A bearded Nightcrawler, Cannonball, Iceman, and a whole lot of multiple men's with the city skyline in the distance. Not a final version of the variant cover and a advanced solicitation. Information for issue for Marvel below. Why? Why? I I I don't know, guys. I mean it, it I okay, number one, the artwork's decent. It looks okay. Um They've got Jean Grey back into her, like, 90s-esque gear. That's cool. Cannonball looks like Cannonball. Psylocke looks more like Diamondback, which I believe is what happened anyway. We, we talked about that before. X-23 leading the team. Okay. X-23 is still a kid. Okay. Jean Grey, even in the comics, has got to be in her 30s. Psylocke's probably in her 30s. Hank, who was Beast, is probably in his 40s now. Storm is probably in her 30s, right? There's nobody in that group that's... And maybe Cannonball might be in his late 20s, Okay. Nobody, nobody is going to follow a teenager in the battle that looks, well, has the abilities of Wolverine, okay? And let's just let's face it, okay? That's the only reason why they put X-23 in charge of this group. Now... I'm I'm going to ask Mario Martinez because I know he's a big X23 fan. Do you agree with me or do you disagree with me? Because I feel that the only reason that they are putting her in charge is because they can't use Wolverine right now because they're just now bringing Wolverine back to life. And it I I just this really upsets me because it's it's poor writing. It's it's like, okay, 
I don't know. I I don't know. I mean, it's just it's a, to me I'm looking at it and it seems like a mess up, you know? Like X-Men and X-Factor and some Excalibur from the 90s kind of squished in there. And it just looks uh, I again, the artwork looks good. It I I don't like the I don't, I, I don't know how to say it. it just okay fine I understand the woman's movement I totally get that but if you're gonna have a woman in charge at least put Storm in charge put Jean Grey in charge which is kind of weird that they didn't because Storm was the leader of the X-Men back in the 80s and into the 90s she was the leader of the gold team, if I remember, if my memory serves me correctly. So, you know, that's, I don't know, gang. I don't mean to, it, that just upset me. That legitimately upset me because it's just a cash grab because X-23 is too young. It would be like putting Kitty Pride. In charge of the X Men back in the '80s is essentially what it, what they're doing, and they're justifying it because she's like Wolverine. Again, if I'm wrong, or well, if you feel that I'm wrong, you're more than welcome to email me and tell me your opinion it's a, your, your opinion is always welcome anybody out there your opinion is welcome just to throw that out there so let's see where we want to go with that um let's see let's do batman i like batman and this batman uh, this batman uh, article caught my attention I was like, okay, let's let's play with it and see what it says. Uh, and it says, Batman just murdered one of his most dangerous foes again. And I was like, okay, okay. Uh, before I start reading this, I do have to put a disclaimer out there. Warning, the following article contains major spoilers for Batman number 57. Written by Tom King, Tony S. Daniel. Danny Mickey and Tamu Mori and Clayton Clouds on sale now. Okay, you ready? Let's see what kind of spoilerific stuff we can get into. In the wake of Nightwing shooting, Batman tracked his ward's would-be assassin across the globe to a remote region of Russia. The hired killer, as one might expect given the terrain, is none other than the Beast, better known as KG Beast. KGB. <laughs> Cute. A perpetual throne. A perpetual. Ugh. Let's just say it was a thorn. He's a thorn in the Dark Knight side. Who has proven to be one of his deadliest foes. Okay. I'm trying to think. I've heard of KG Beast. But I don't. 
remember him being really that dangerous. You know, I I'm I could be wrong. Again, it says, of course, the showdown in Batman 57 is far from the first, and the outcome has some similarities to fight with pairs they have engaged in before. And almost every time, Batman has acted uncharacteristically, seemingly breaking his one rule and leaving KG Beast for dead after shooting him with a gun of sorts. Okay, and it's showing a little clip here. It looks like Batman's firing a battering at him. Close range. It says, Tom King and Tony S. Daniels, Batman 57, is largely features the two longtime foes duking it out in the frozen wasteland. It is a brutal battle, but ultimately Batman gets the upper hand. With the beast ready to deliver an otherwise fatal blow the Dark Knight, to the Dark Knight, Batman makes a deceptive and crippling move. Firing his grappling gun at close range and hitting the beast point blank in the face. The impact snapped his neck. Now crippled and facing certain death in the cold, the beast makes Batman an offer. In exchange for saving his life, Beast promises to reveal who hired him to shoot Nightwing. Coldly professing that he's the world's greatest detective, Batman confidently tells the beast that he'll solve the mystery on his own. He has he then been, begins his lengthy journey back home, leaving his enemy to die. But the dark night, so dark that he would mercilessly let his villain, this villain, even one he tried to kill, his oldest partner, simply freeze to death. Well, yes, and in fact, this isn't the first time Batman has done this very same thing. Last time wasn't even that long ago. Really? There's, it's a two-parter, kid, so I'm just waiting for the next part to load. Uh, I really don't remember. Um, and let's see. It says, when... Scott Snyder and John Romita Jr.'s own My Own Worst Enemy arc for All-Star Batman. Oh, that's why I don't read All-Star All Batman. It featured many of the Batman villains, including the Beast. In the epilogue to the story in issue number five, the Beast gets the surprise drop on Batman and nearly kills him. Batman responds by plunging both himself and the Beast off a cliff with no immediate means to break their fall. It's the only intervention of Batman's newest crime-fighting partner, the Signal, that manages to save him. The Beast, however, was not so lucky. There was no body ever shown, of course, and in pretty much every piece of literary fiction and historical means the villain will rise again and he did just that in red hood and the outlaws annual number two before turning back up in batman and then i'm looking at it here and it shows him popping back up it says the first time 
the deadly history between the bat and the beast go back even further, uh, as far back as it can. In fact, to the very first storyline featuring the KG Beast and Jim Starling and Jim Alpro's Ten Knights of the Beast arc three decades ago. At the end of the storyline, Batman sealed KGB Beast inside a fortified room nestled in the sewers beneath Gotham with no way out. There's no mention of any revival or rescue within that story, leaving readers to presume Batman left KGB Beast to suffer a lingering death by starvation or suffocation. More likely, though, the unsuspecting Gotham utility worker provided, provided an, an inadvertent rescue the next morning, most likely at the cost of his or her own life, thus making Batman de facto impact in yet another death. Maybe the world's greatest detective? Deduced from that very first encounter that if KGB Beast can survive being locked inside the Gotham sewers, he can survive a broken neck. Or perhaps knowing that he himself persisted after suffering a broken neck, he figured his equally tough enemy could survive similarly devastating injury. Batman has yet to comprehend the irony of such realization, though, considering the likely identity of the Beast's employer. With all signs pointing at Bane, the man who broke bats, who broke the bat. Or perhaps this is all part of Bane's sinister plan, breaking the bat in a whole new way. If Batman has meant to slay the beast all these times, it means he considers him more dangerous than even the Joker, and will go to any length to put him down. That certainly says a lot. Well, that was pretty interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, in that mindset, yeah, that's very true because he won't kill the Joker. So, yeah, that's that's an interesting thought process put to that particular story and their their feud between the KG Beast and Batman. I wonder if Marvel knows that they're calling him the Beast now and not KG Beast. I smell a lawsuit coming. All right, let's see. Let's. What else do we got in here that I can talk about? You know, one of the things that I, I've noticed in nerdum and geekdom lately is the correlation of someone agreeing with someone else that something is good. Typically, lately. It's more the opposite, that they'll agree that something was bad instead of it being good. Now, Spider-Man Homecoming, I believe, for the most part, is one of those situations where, for the most part, again, we all know the storyline's all wrong, because it's always wrong, and that... It was a good movie. It was a good Spider-Man movie. And Tom Holland makes a very good Spider-Man. I think the general consensus to that is agreed upon across the fandom. 
And I personally am excited to see the next Spider-Man movie, which is called Spider-Man Far From Home. Which leads me into my next article. And the next article says, Spider-Man Far From Home wraps production. So that means it's done. It's finished. And, okay, I won't talk. I'll read the article, and then if it doesn't touch on it, then I'll talk on it. Okay? It says, Tom Holland has confirmed the completion of principal photography on John Watts' Spider-Man Far From Home. The sequel to the 1917, 1917, good lord, 2017 hit Spider-Man Homecoming and his first film in Marvel Studios Phase 4 plans, there's lots writing on Far From Home after all. It it revives, or uh, it arrives, excuse me, in the wake of Avengers 4, which promises to leave Marvel Cinematic Universe dramatically changed. After early, oh, excuse me. After earlier posting a photo of himself walking into the set for the last day of production, Hollins, with a shot in the new black and red costume, I haven't seen that yet, stands alongside Zaldana. I guess that's the chick who plays MJ, huh? That's a wrap, he wrote. Okay. Unfortunately, the the picture that is posted on this is not coming through. Hmm. And I don't want to. Let's see. I'm going to go ahead and punch on it and just view this in inst on Instagram. I'm touching it and it's not working. Well, shoot. Okay, I'll just keep going. The globe-trotting adventure is rumored to feature such foes as Mysterio, the Charmerian, Hydro-Man, and the Malted Man, along with the return of the Vulture and Scorpion, which means there will probably be plenty of danger for the Wall Climber. Such MCU favorites as Nick Fury, Maria Hill, and Happy Hogan are also part of this ensemble. And again, there's more pictures, but they're not coming through. Dog on it. Spider-Man Far From Home wraps just days after Joe and Anthony Russo complete reshoots on Avengers 4. How the concluding part of the fight with Thanos ties into Far From Home remains to be seen. But as it stands, Peter's next adventures is set to start minutes after Avengers 4 concludes. Now that the movie's three-month shoot has finished, fans will have to wait plenty for the first teaser of Far From Home footage. Apart from a few shots of Jake Dillenhall in the Mysterio suit and leaked video of the movie's stunts, no one is any closer to understanding the plot of Far From Home. And of course it says... Directed by John Watts, Spider-Man Far From Home, Tom Holland, Zaldana, uh, Jake Dillenhall, Samuel L. Jackson. It arrives in January, or excuse me, July 5th, 2019. That's still a long way away, kids. Wow. But yes, I'm really, really hoping that we get to, to see 
that movie. And I hope it's, I mean, with the fact that it's got such a high volume of rogue gallery in it, I'm really, it's got to be like action packed. Now, when I first heard that, remember the Sinister Six movie that was supposed to come out like a long time ago and it never happened? I wonder if it has anything to do, you know, with like the reminiscence of the Sinister Six. Maybe they're going to try to do it after all. That's kind of interesting. All right. Let's see. Um, I have two, two left, and they're not very happy ones. Um, okay. Uh, I'll go ahead and start tackle this one. I've been trying to hold it off, but I, I, it's, I, I kind of mentioned it not too long ago. My feelings on on how Disney and ABC kind of did uh, Roseanne Barr, and you know they launched the Connors, the spinoff, and it was revealed that she was dead. Well, I guess. I didn't watch it. I, I now let let me just put something on on Front Street, okay? I did not watch it in the '90s when it was brand new. You know, it was just Roseanne. I just didn't care for it. Now I did watch it when it went into syndication after it, it finished airing. I watched a couple episodes, so okay, you know, I, I seen it, so I'm familiar with the characters. But I'm nowhere near a fan of the show. So when it came back on and it re-aired, you know, the the revived uh, Roseanne, I didn't watch it. I just wasn't a fan. And the Connors, the spinoff, came back on. Or not came back on, but it came on for the first time it premiered. And again, I didn't watch it because I'm just not interested. Okay? I just need to put that out there. And this says, Roseanne Barr blasts her character's grim death on the Connors. Now, I know she died, and I I have an idea of how she died, but I don't know exactly. So we'll find out what it says, okay? It says, despite saying last month that she wouldn't watch the Connors, Roseanne Barr came out swinging Tuesday night following the premiere of the Roseanne spinoff, proclaiming on Twitter, I ain't dead. And she used uh, some bad words that I'm not going to use. She followed that with the release of a joint statement with her longtime um, rabbi, Shamli Botich, Botich, that decries the way in which her character, Roseanne Connor, was written out of the show. The series premiere picked up weeks after Roseanne's death from what initially believed to be a heart attack. However, soon revealed to have been due to the overdose of painkillers, which picks up on a thread from the Roseanne revival in which the character became addicted to opioids following knee surgery. Uh, Let's see. It says, and this is a quote, while we wish the best for the cast and production crew of the Connors, 
all of whom are deeply dedicated to their craft and were Roseanne's cherished colleagues. The statement reads in part, We regret that ABC chose to cancel Roseanne by killing off the Roseanne Connor character, that it was done through an opioid overdose lent an unnecessarily grim and morbid dimension to an otherwise happy family show. This was a choice the network did not have to make. ABC swiftly canceled the hit revival in May following Barr's accused racist tweet attacking Valerie Jarrett, a former advisor of President Obama. Amid mounting criticism, Barr apologized and pledged to leave Twitter, but didn't. She has reportedly claimed she was unaware that Jared was African American. ABC promptly began develop, development on The Connors, a spinoff featuring all the stars of the Roseanne revival except Barr, who doesn't benefit financially from the new series. Uh, characterizing Roseanne as the only show on TV that directly addressed the deeply division threatening the very fabric of our society. The statement by Barr and Bortech criticized ABC for unwillingly to forgive. After repeated and heartfelt apologies, the network was unwilling to look past a regrettable mistake thereby denying the twin American values of both repentance and forgiveness. People will sometimes make the mistake of speaking words that do not truly reflect who they are. However, it is the power of forgiveness that defines our humanity. I just find this as a sad... Sad story all the way around. I I just I don't know. I I've said this before. I think that her 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 rights of freedom of speech were violated, and it's it's sad because again, it, and it it doesn't. And I, I put that out there earlier to kind of hopefully make uh, a better image of what I'm trying to say is I don't have nothing to gain from this. I don't, as a fan, I don't care because I didn't watch the show. So I, I have nothing to gain. My hang-up simply was that she made a comment. Whether it be right, wrong, or indifferent, that is her American right to say what she said. That is a right. And the PC culture of today, because honestly, we joked about it in the 90s. Oh, we're so PC. PC back in the 90s is nothing compared to the line that has been drawn in sand in today's society. People are afraid to say their minds to the simple fact that 
I tried to bring in a few people that I know to to the podcast network because we had uh, a dropout for a show. So we have a slot open. And I, I talked to a few people, and I'm like, you know, you, you have great voices. We I have the gear. Just come to my place, and we'll record. And both of them said, no, I'm not comfortable because I might say the wrong thing. That's sad. That is sad. Now, I get up here, and I say what's on my mind. I just I, – I keep it neutral. I keep it grounded. But you guys know how I feel, and that's just the way society is, and it's kind of sad. And uh, I don't really i I was going to talk about the the launch of the Titans uh, TV show, and they're they're promising that Starfire and Raven are to have more accurate costumes as the show goes on. And I'm looking at the picture of them, and I just, I don't have, I, I don't want to talk about it. I mean, that's just, that, that's not the Teen Titans at all. I mean, they, I, I don't know. I can kind of see Robin as, as Nightwing. Maybe that's where they cast him. But the others, like Raven and Beast Boy, and sure enough, Starfire does not look like Starfire. And, um, yeah, I'm just going to leave it that. They said that, and I didn't watch it. I'm not going to watch it. I have no intentions of watching it. But you are definitely welcome to let me know what you think about it because it doesn't look well. So I'm just going to leave it right there. They said they're going to put more costumes on them. All right, kids. That is it for this week for my public life as an American nerd. Uh, Come back next week, and we'll figure out what we will talk about. And I will try to make it more of an upbeat show. Uh, For some reason, I just have like a a kind of a blah uh, feel about it. And I apologize if it does. Maybe it's just because I don't feel good. But... I I try to give you the news, and sometimes it's not pretty. And just, I want to geek out. That's all I want to do. And have fun and enjoy my nerd stuff. (laughs) All right. Uh, Thank you for stopping by. I hope you enjoyed what I I had for you this week. Even if it was just laughing, saying, Ah, you're a nerd. You're an idiot. You're dumb. That, That works for me as well. So, for this week, I am your host, David K. Montoya, and for the My Public Life as an American Nerd podcast, I bid you adieu.